Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Saturday, October 17th. Before we talk about what has been an outstanding week of tennis in the professional tennis world, honestly, not too bad for a mid-October. Just wanted to give all of you listeners a quick note about our recording schedule here at Crack Rackets moving forward. Now, of course, we here at CR have done our best to try and keep all of you Crack Rackets fans updated on the latest developments in the professional tennis world, of course. That doesn't just mean covering all of the action on court. That means covering the multiple storylines we've got monitoring. All of us still wondering, how many events are we going to see during the remaining of this 2020 season. Of course, we're also wondering what's the 2021 season going to look like? Where the, will there be an Australian Open for all of us to enjoy in January? And then, of course, many different political movements happening right now in professional tennis, whether it be ATP player council movements, of course, Novak Djokovic, uh, Vashik Pospisil still forming their PTPA. That's an ongoing story. We have far too many players testing positive for COVID-19 and seeing the way the tournaments are adjusting their safety and health protocols moving forward to, uh, you know, accommodate and try and ensure a safe environment for all of these players. That, of course, is probably the storyline of 2020, not just in tennis, but across the globe. Uh, but of course, we have done our best here at Cracked Rackets to keep you up to date on all of those things. We call this our daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies. But of course, an unforced error by me this week, I have not done my best to ensure we have a mini break episode for all of you listeners each and every day. Of course, as some of you may know, as I stated early in the week, I am home this week in Michigan visiting my parents. Always lovely to get to spend some time with them. I would argue my mom, Laura Gruskin, probably as big a Cracked Rackets fan as any of you listeners out there. So, of course, it's great to get to put some face time with our biggest Cracked Rackets fan. It's also not too bad to see my father as well, my little brother who's in town. It's just, you know, it's fun to be home. And, of course, we've gone, what, six, eight? 10 weeks straight with all of the tennis dating from World Team Tennis starting through the U.S. Open, all the action in New York, and then, of course, through the action in Paris. But nevertheless, uh, hey, great shot, or I apologize, it's a hey, not great shot by me. I got to do better making sure we get these podcasts to you day in, day out. We get them to you at an appropriate time. And of course, I will be heading back to Indy on Sunday. So expect things to get back to normal for us here at Crack Rackets and our scheduling moving forward. Ford, of course, one thing that is normal about every podcast, it's the reason we're able to do it. And of course, it's because of the support we get not only from you incredible Cracked Rackets fans, you Patreon subscribers out there, but of course, also from our sponsors at Midwest Sports and Aerobar. And I'll keep things on the short side today. You know, for any of your tennis equipment needs, just go to MidwestSports.com. Use that promo code CR15, 15% off your order, free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, that free can of Wilson extra duty tennis balls, MidwestSports.com. The promo code is CR15. Of course, you turn to Aerobar for the only tennis-specific energy bars in the business. More potassium than a banana. Delicious cinnamon, honey, oat, and chocolate chip flavors. And best of all, as all of you listeners know, it comes with a podcast. Our Getting to the Point episodes focusing on the importance of nutrition and fitness in the modern game now. Those podcasts, Once Upon a Time, were found on the mini break feed. They now can all be found on our Cracked Interviews feed, so be on the lookout for that, of course. Uh, and, you know, again, the way you can support our friends at Aerobar, go to aerobar.com. Use that promo code CRACKED15. Now, with that in mind, let's talk about the tennis we saw this week. And as I mentioned, not too bad 
for a mid-October. So many great events. Very ATP-centric this week, although, of course, we open things up a little bit more next week. For now, we've got three ATP-level events, two at the 250 level in Colonia and, I believe, Sardinia. Of course, we've got the ATP 500 in St. Petersburg. A couple of challengers I want to talk about as well, but I think the place we have to start is in St. Petersburg for the ATP 500. And I should say, I'm recording this at about 1.58 p.m., on Saturday afternoon. And so, you know, yes, the semifinal matches have been played. Yes, we know who our finalists are going to be. But the focus of this podcast going to be the quarterfinal round. And I promise you, listeners, if I don't, shame me on Twitter. But there will be an episode before the finals start tomorrow. It's going to be a two-mini break Saturday. Uh, We'll release the second one later in the day. I'm going to try and cajole Jamie McDonald onto the podcast with me. If not, I want to break down the matchups we have in a couple of these finals in particular in Colonia. I think it's going to be a really fun matchup. I think in St. Petersburg, it's going to be a really fun matchup. By the way, the Sardinia matchup, the Challenger matchups are great, but I want to do a deep dive on those St. Petersburg and Colonia finals because those are two finals near and dear to our hearts here at Cracked Rackets. That may be a bit of a spoiler. That's a bit of a teaser alert, but again, I want to focus on the quarterfinal rounds here today, and I want to start in St. Petersburg because this has been one of the You know, I don't want to say benders, that doesn't sound like the appropriate connotations, but this has been one of my sticking points over these past couple of weeks, past couple of months, really since the hiatus and quarantine started, because all of us had time to go do a little bit of research, do some reflection, find out the bigger patterns that have existed in professional tennis over the course of time, right? When a player is making their breakthrough, what does that look like when a player is making their real first ascension from, you know, promising young talent, top 50, top 30, maybe? maybe even, what does it look like when that player is making an ascension, a jump into the top 10, into the top 8, becoming a perennial contender at every match they arrive at, uh, every event they arrive at, excuse me, well, I think we're seeing that happen right now in the form of two players on the ATP Tour, and we've talked about one of them so frequently here on the podcast, but just to make another note about what he did to advance to the quarterfinals, Andre Rublev's 6-2-6-1 win over Cam Norrie, it was just routine. And I mean, the way Andre Rublev, you know about the forehand, I've said it before, I'll say it again, if you go have the privilege to see Andre Rublev in person, you get to hear the sound, his the, the contact point of him swinging at the forehand, it sounds like a fighter jet taking off. It sounds like nothing you have ever heard in tennis before. And of course, the eye test matches the ear test on this one, just watching him hit forehands the way his racket speed is second. I mean, he can get that racket from his hip to his shoulder in maybe 0.3 seconds. I mean, I have never seen anything like it, and I keep mentioning this. He becomes a better and better athlete. He's more comfortable moving to the outer thirds, more comfortable and more able to get pace and depth and, you know, proper spin and elevation over the net out of his corners now and buy himself time. And of course, for Andre Rublev, if he's able to have time to set up his forehand, set up his patterns, go cross-court, cross-court down the line, or backhand cross, backhand cross, inside-out forehand, and then inside in forehand down that deuce side line to just put the point away. He is so confident in his patterns right now, and the game is just opening up for him so beautifully. Now, you look for Andre Rublev during this season, and we've talked about it before. The guy is 29-7 and seven overall, and I mean, it's not just the 29-7. and seven, It's who the losses are to, right? A quarterfinal at a major loss to Stefano Tsitsipas in the French Open. I think we can all accept that loss. Of course, he's got three titles on the year, two on hard courts, one on clay, but again, you're looking at the seven losses, a three-set loss to Hubi Hercats in Rome. Again, considering that match came off of a quarterfinal appearance at the U.S. Open where he lost to Daniil Medvedev a couple of days before, I think you can justify that one. That's not a bad loss by any stretch of the imagination. And you look through you know, the rest of his 2020 season, if you were to say, okay, of those seven losses, are any of them bad? Well, straight sets to Alex Virov in the fourth round of the Australian Open. Again, a loss to Alex Virov is never a bad loss. Would you have liked to see him maybe get a fourth set? Sure, but when you're nitpicking and saying, oh, I would have liked to see him lose in four instead of three, that's how you know it's been a good year. Now, the straight set loss to Krajinovic in Rotterdam, fine. That's probably the one you're most frustrated with. Two losses to Dan Evans, one in the first round of Western and Southern, the other the first uh, quarterfinals of Dubai. 
I think you can write those ones off. I think Dan Evans, who A, has been playing phenomenally this year, worked himself back into the top 30, reached a career high uh, in his career, you know, the highest uh, the highest career high note. Uh, hey, great shot to me, but reached a career high in his uh in his career this year by reaching the top 30 of the ATP rankings. I'm sorry that I swore there, West Duff, leave that in. That was a true visceral reaction to me saying something stupid and catching myself saying something stupid. Anyways, you know, two of the losses to Dan Evans, one of them to Krajinovich, those three losses, you want to get angry about them, fine, but... This is a player making the jump. It's been from start to finish of this year. The fact that he looked so good during the ATP Cup, or I don't even think he played ATP Cup, but in lieu of playing ATP Cup, you know, he goes down and wins the event in Doha, right? Beats Mute, beats Kasmanovich, beats Herbert versus Kukushkin. Follows that up, he beats Query, Evans, FAA, Lloyd Harris to win in Adelaide. You know, this is a guy who won his first 11 matches of this season, and now at this point, he's, I believe, 29 and 27 on the year. I think he's something like 40. And like nine over his past 52. I don't remember exactly what the stat was, but he's making the jump, folks. And I, I know we keep reiterating that. And you look at him now where he's at in the career or in the live rankings. He is up now in the live rankings to a new career high of number eight. And if you look right now in the race to the year end finals, he is now in the pole position for that seventh spot. Six of the spots already clinched. He now has a slight lead over Diego Schwartzman and those two players now building a fairly significant lead over Matteo Berrettini. They now are both up by a little bit, you know, for uh, first Rublev, he's up by a little bit over 300 points. I think for Schwartzman, he's up by like 305. So it's going to be a battle down the finish. But, you know, if you're asking from start to finish, who has been the most consistent player on the ATP tour in 2020? With all due respect to the Grand Slam winners, Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic, and Dominic Team, week in, week out, it's been Andre Rublev. And that's not a hot take. That's not a controversial take. With all due respect, that's just fact. I mean, three titles on the year. He's 37-7 and seven since November. That comes from Tunmani Karyol. It's the fifth final in the past 12 months. He's chasing his fifth title. He's up to eighth in the race. I mean, again, did he win a Grand Slam? No. But... This has been the most consistent player. Okay, okay, I was wrong. He hasn't been the best player on the ATP Tour in 2020. He has been the most consistent player on the ATP Tour in 2020. And for Andre Rublev, who, again, was born 1997, I want to say at this point he's still 22 years old, turning 23 later this year. Guy's a stud. Guy's has established himself in the Zverev, Medvedev, Tsitsipas category, and fine. It took a year later. It took him a year longer than them. But you got to keep in mind, Andre Rublev. The only thing that slowed him down in his career was injuries. Right. This is a guy who I think 2017, 2018 made a U.S. Open quarterfinal. A guy who you know was a World Junior number one. The moment you seen you saw him hit a forehand for the first time, you go, okay, this guy's a special talent. Now, where does the rest of his game go? Well, we know where the rest of his game is going. I've said it before. I'll end this thought on Rublev here. I know that's eight minutes in the opening on Rublev. I do apologize on that. I was like, I've talked about him before. I'm going to talk about him again. Uh, The guy is going to become the best tennis player he can be. You can just tell his body language, his work ethic. This guy eats, breathes, lives, sleeps tennis at all times. And for us fans, that's phenomenal. That's exactly what you want out of your young talent. And so, you know, credit to Andre Rublev. I didn't even talk about the match that much, but two and one win for him over Cam Norrie. And now he faces Denis Shapovalov in the semifinals. That match already happened. And again, I'm going to save that for later on today because I want to rewatch the replay. But I mean, that's the next guy I want to talk about. Andre Rublev, phenomenal. You all know that now. But Denis Shapovalov, in the midst of not quite the Rublev level jump, but doing what Rublev was doing to start the year. I mean, you look at Shapovalov and the way he ended last season, right? For Denis Shapovalov, he finally got over the hump. He won his first ATP title at the end of last year. He does it indoors, I believe, at Stockholm, if memory serves me correct. That, of course, title came after he made the semifinals of Chengdu. He then goes on, uh, as I mentioned, to win that indoor hardcourt in Stockholm. And from there, you know, again, the ascension continued. He makes the finals of a Masters event in Paris. And, yeah, he gets a walkover from Rafa in the semifinals. But, you know, he beat Fonini, Zverev, Monfils back to back to back to get even to that semifinal. So, you know, that's the follow-up of Stockholm. Now he starts off this season, and it wasn't the best 
ATP Cup for him, although he did get wins over Tsitsipas and Zverev, and then, you know, quarterfinal Auckland's first round loss in Australia. You don't love that, but, you know, the way he has played in particular since the restart, the loss is a three-set loss to Jan Leonard Struff, second round of Cincinnati. Well, fine, you can write that one off, but still, to beat Fritz, to beat Goffin, to lose in five sets to Carreno Busta at the U.S. Open, then to follow that up, make the semifinals in Rome, beat Umber, beat Dimitrov, honestly get a good win over Pedro Martinez, Portero, and Guido Pea in the first two rounds as well. And then, of course, you know, the five-set second-round loss to Carbea Espana at the French Open. Of course, that wasn't the best, but really, again, it's Is he ascending to top 10? No, not yet. But he has ascended to that top 20 consistent player. And you look for Denis Shapovalov, that's exactly where he's at in the rankings right now. For the live rankings for Shapovalov, he has skyrocketed all the way up to number 12. And you look for him in the ATP race, how many points has he accumulated this year? He's also number 12. He's got a legitimate shot at qualifying for the year-end finals. And it's just because you see a player who's starting to grow more confident in their game. And for Denis Shapovalov, of, you know, the skill set, the firepower, the jump off the screen talent, that was never an issue for him. The same way the ball screams off the Rublev racket, it doesn't sound exactly the same, but you can't watch Denis Shapovalov and not think, oh man, that guy is just blessed with one of those shoulders, one of those arms that just can absolutely pop the ball. And you know, it's not just the forehand wing, right? He can do it with the one-handed backhand as well. Just on the on-the-run power, the incredible athleticism he displays. He's a really exceptional mover on both hard courts and clay. He's able to slide both in and out of shots. He just, there's a lot of skills for Denis Shapovalov. The problem is, you know, again, for him, it's finding the diamond in the rough. It's the fact that you got to smooth it out. He, Of course, he's got all of these talents, but because he can do a lot of things on the court, that sometimes leads to the ball spraying. That sometimes leads to inconsistent performance. And of course, for him, sometimes the problem is he wants to go so fast. He wants to play, you know, he wants to hit people off the court. So it's always top speed, top speed, top speed. And sometimes that plan B, that plan C, when things aren't going well for him, uh, they it causes him to struggle. But I'm telling you, ever since his partnership with Mikhail Yusny started, there's just a, it seems a concerned effort, and I wish I had more statistics to back this up right now, but just, he does seem to have reined in the power a little bit more. He does seem to have gotten a bit more patient. I think that uh, that mindset was on display in his 4-5 and five win over Stan Wawrinka in the quarterfinals here in St. Petersburg. I mean, you look at the numbers in this match. For Shapovalov, we talk about the things he does well. Makes 67% of his first serves, wins 84% of those points. So 42 of 50 on first serve points. That's always a great place to start with the first serve, building around that, you know, again, that consistent first weapon. You get to play plus one ball on an indoor hard court. There's no denying Denis Shapovalov the plus one shots, the plus one forehand, his willingness to move forward. He's got that skill set. Now, in this match, he goes 7 of 25 on second serve points against Stan, and that's not great, and that's sort of indicative of, well, if you can get Shapovalov on his back foot, if you can get him playing a little bit of defense, he will offer you up a shank or a slapped wide ball. But of course, Shapovalov was able to attack the Stan Wawrinka serve just as well. Stan, you know, he, the both guys winning 18 points on their opponent's second serve points. Now for Shapovalov, he was seven of 25 on second serve for Wawrinka. He's 20 of 30, or he's 12 of 30, excuse me, on second serve points. But you know, for Shapovalov, it was the fact that he just seemed to be able to consistently find a first serve on the biggest points. Right? He saved. Six of the seven break points he faced. Meanwhile, he converts three of the eight break chances he created for himself. I just thought, you know, it's weird to say this, but he was in control of this match from start to finish against Stan Wawrinka. Of course, Stan Wawrinka can hit anyone off the court, but Denis Shapovalov was the better player in this match, clearly. He was the one dictating terms. He was the one winning his lefty forehand to the Stan Wawrinka backhand exchange. He was the one being like, oh, you want to go your forehand to my backhand stand? That's fine. I'm just going to keep my head down. I'm going to drive through that ball and, you know, drive through the return as well. Would I like to see Denis Shapovalov adopt a little bit more slice to add some variety to his return? Of course I would. Uh, But he's not quite there yet. And again, he's not on the Rublev level of, okay, this guy's a top 10 player. This guy... On a hard court major, he's quarterfinals every time. Lock him in. That's Andre Rublev in the draw for me now. I don't really care who he plays. I think that guy is that good on a hard court. But Denis Shapovalov continues to show that he can be that good on a hard court, and he's not quite there yet. But again, 
number 12 right now in the live rankings in the race to the year-end finals. This is a guy making the jump, and at 21 years old, should any of us, you know, we, we've always said Denis Shapovalov is one of those guys who has Grand Slam title winner upside potential. I think all of that rings true still today. I think he has been phenomenal, and that was a really good 4-5 and five win for him over Stan Wawrinka. And I keep saying, if a generational shift is going to happen, the Shapovalovs of the world, they've got to beat the Stan Wawrinkas. And that's exactly what happened. So shout out to Denis Shapovalov. He now faces Andre Rublev in what I promise you was a very fun ATP semifinal that we will talk about a little bit later, of course, on the other half of the draw, Milos Raonic just Raonicing his way through Karen Hatchinov, 6-1-7-6. That first set was over before it even started, and that's what Raonic does best, right? And we're not trying to be disrespectful to Raonic here uh, when we say it's serve bot style, because that's not what it is. But we will say for Milos Raonic, of course, you watch his match anytime, and you think, okay, you are going to see big first serves, plus one tennis. He's going to try and set up the forehand. He's going to relentlessly slice his backhand to try and bait you you into throwing a slice back so that he can immediately jump around that ball, hit a first forehand, whether it be inside in, inside out, and then eventually work his way towards the net, and it just worked. You know, it was a relentless pressure against Hatchinov. He beat Hatchinov 1-6, in six, as I mentioned. You know, Hatchinov, I think, went down 5-0 in that first set in about 20 minutes, and Credit to Hatchinov, who found his range in that second set, who started to extend points a little bit longer, get a little bit better depth. And, you know, that first set, he played a little bit scared, right? He was just like, okay, maybe if I just make the ball, Raonic will offer me a miss. Well, that's not what happens with Milos Raonic. He executes his game plan. He goes after that forehand. He even was driving the backhand down the line. And to be honest, he looks fit as a fiddle right now. Milos Raonic has clearly gotten in good shape, indoor hardcore. You never want to doubt him. And that's exactly what he did. He executed from start to finish. You know, on the very first point of the tiebreaker, Milos Raonic hit, uh, you know, Hatchinov did a good job, by the way, in that second set of being less passive, of saying, you know what, enough just trying to make balls. I want to play my game. I actually have to inflict a little bit of damage on Milos Raonic, take it to him, not play passively. And so they get to the breaker. And I honestly thought momentum was on Hatchinov's side. I thought he might be able to flip this match had he been able to get it to a third. But on the very first point, Hatchinov moves forward to attack. Rayanich has a backhand passing shot that looks like it is clearly going wide until it hits the net tape bounces in, Hatchinov misses the response, he takes a 1-0 mini break lead, and from there, Rayonich just kind of cruised to that 7-1 tiebreak victory, so that's a really great win for Milos Rayonich, who will now take on Borna Chorch, who feels like every season, Borna Chorch ends up healthy at the end of the year, and whether it's Shanghai, whether it's Beijing, whether it's one of these, you know, indoors here at St. Petersburg, he always seems to find a way to put together a nice little run at the end of the year at this hardcore stretch of the season, and you know, for him this week, Really impressive wins. I've talked before about my fondness for Roman Cephillian. That was a nice win for him. He also beat Feliciano Lopez. And then today... He knocks off Riley Opelka, 7-6-6-3, and what's most impressive about that win for Chorich, uh, the fact that Opelka served for that first set up 5-3, and, you know, Chorich just kind of just stayed steady, you know, took a couple more feet behind the baseline, tried to play to big targets on the return, gave Opelka the space to serve in volley, but made a bet on himself that, hey, I'm going to make my return to a good target. You may have a first volley or a first ball, but it's going to be tricky enough that I'm going to get a look at a first pass. And then Borna Church just passed exceptionally well. And of course, you know, the chronicle of Borna Chorch these past three years, he goes from, oh man, is this guy as talented as we all used to think he is? Should we have not, uh, you know, should we have never lowered him from the list of one of the top four or five next-gen guys out there? And of course, that's what he was. He was one of the first to break through. He was the youngest in the top 100, the youngest in the top 50 until Alex Virev supplanted him. Uh, but Borna Chorch is exceptionally skilled. And of course, all of the baseline skills that uh, that we all got excited about are still there. The backhand looks beautiful. Ability to absorb pace, change direction. He does great off of that wing, of course. The forehand, still a little bit big, can get a little bit spray happy, but he's just a great athlete. A really good mover, sneaky tall now, six foot, six one, six two, is able to use that length to get around the court, not sacrifice any speed. Um and just a comfortable volleyer, a guy who wants to move forward, who wants to hit the big inside-in forehand and wants to be the aggressor. And we've talked about it before, how sometimes that gets him in trouble. Sometimes he's honestly just at his best when he's relying on his instincts, his athleticism to play, you know, the on-the-run passing shot as he did here against Opelka or whatever it may be. And 
But again, you know, Ryo Opelka is always going to pose a tough challenge, and for Opelka in this match, I thought he did a really good job of just, you know, again, making that extra ball, making that return, taking the space George was offering him, and playing aggressive. And, you know, for Opelka in this match, you always love to see 32 of 42 on first serve points. It's a 76% win percentage. He made 62% of his first serve points. Uh, but he also tanks too many return games. And I mean, yes, you know, he was able to get that break uh, in the first set and go up 5-3, but it felt like there were other chances for him there to maybe work his way into a couple of games. But, you know, you look at the stats, he lost a total of, uh, you know, Borna George in this match lost 12 points total on serve out of the 54 he played. 12 points total. So to put make the, the equivalent there, he missed 12 first serves in this match, 42 of 54. Uh, he won 10 of his 12 second serve points, but I'm saying he missed as many first serves as he lost points on serve. Uh, that's just got to be better for Riley Opelk. And then similarly, if you're 7 feet tall, you can't go 11 of 26 on second serve points. you got to be more aggressive. Even if you're hitting double faults, you know, 16 aces against one double faults. If you have 16 aces against one double faults, If you're making 62% of your first serves, you're winning 76% of those first serve points. Just hit a first serve on the second serve, Riley. Some of these times you would have been better. You would have been. I'm talking to him. I don't know why. He knows this. uh, So, hey, great shot to me. But sometimes he's just better off hitting a second serve, going big, playing for that moment, playing aggressive as opposed to playing passive and offering a kick serve up that while effective, Chorch always got a clean look on. And that was where he was able to set up that second ball, right? That second look at a pass and take control of points. But, you know, for Riley Opelka, obviously a great performance here this week. He beats Daniil Medvedev. He follows that up uh, by, uh, you know, by uh, having chances here against George. But a good quarterfinal performance for Opelka, uh, obviously for George. Now he'll advance to the semifinals against Rayonich. And, you know, if you're born a George, you're probably like, I'm very happy that I get to play Milos Rayonich immediately following Riley Opelka because I just played a set. Uh, I just played an entire match of plus one tennis. That's what I get to do again here. Uh, so that's obviously an exciting time for young Milos, or for Borna Chorch, who, by the way, sneaky again, only 23 years old, still has yet to turn 24, back up to number 24 in the world in the live rankings. Uh, Would you like him to be closer to the top 10 right now than 20, given what he was doing two, three, four years ago? Of course. But for someone who has struggled with injuries and consistency as frequently as he has, to see Borna Chorch still in the top 25, uh, that feels like a boonswangle. That feels like, again, that feels like a bit of a, a swindling on his part to maintain that ranking. Hey, great shot to you, Borna a George, if he starts to play well again, uh, 25 is the floor, not the ceiling for what he is capable of rankings-wise. So hopefully, again, this is the start of another push from Borna George to get to the top 10, which is where certainly he has the talent um, to be. But that sets up the semifinals in St. Petersburg. Again, really fun matches between Shapovalov, Rublev, Chordich, and Rayonich, which we will talk about on a different podcast later today that you can all be on the lookout for here on the Mini Break Podcast. Feed. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. But want to switch gears now? I know that was a long, uh, opening on St. Petersburg. It was a, it's was it been a really fun, again, ATP 500 match, but we've got more ATP action going on this week, so let's shift gears now to the 250 level, and let's go now to Colonia, right? I can't believe we're 27 minutes into this podcast. Alex Zverev is playing this week on tour, and I haven't talked about him for Alex Zverev. He now reaches the finals uh, of this event in Colonia. Wait, that was a spoiler alert. Leave it in, Westoff. Yes, Zverev's going to reach the finals, and by the way, his opponent is going to be phenomenal, but, you know, Alex Zverev thus far in the quarterfinals, interesting win for him against young South American, uh, South American, excuse me, South African Lloyd Harris for Zverev, 6-4, 3 victory. I saw some stats. I think Zverev right now is, like, number three or number four on tour in terms of success on first serve. I don't think his first serve percentage is the highest on tour, but in terms of points actually won on your first serve, I believe right now he is number three. And look, we say it all the time for Zverev, but it's just, you know, 
once, once the serve gets consistent, which is obviously the biggest weakness, and we all saw it manifest itself so clearly in that Grand Slam final when he's hitting a 67-mile-per-hour second serve in a fifth-set tiebreaker in the final of a Grand Slam, obviously, but... You know, on serve this week here in Colonia, he has looked so good. And you're just like, oh, yeah, indoor hardcourt, six foot six, Alex Zverev, who's beating him here? And so, you know, Lloyd Harris did a good job also playing to the big serve. Lloyd Harris, six five, six six himself, was able to take control of points. But then you got to see Alex hit some just ridiculous on-the-run on the passing shots. Oh, you know, I talk enough about Zverev, so I can leave that there. He's a three-set winner, and, you know, he is going to get to the final. It's going to be a really good final for him. And, of course, he ended up knocking off someone who had a phenomenal week here this week, someone who has looked better and better on hard courts during uh, 2020 than maybe we thought he was ever going to look in his career, and that's Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, the young Spaniard who this week uh, advanced to the semifinals after he earned wins over Emil Rusevori, another talented young player, a three-set win over Marin Cilic. That's a really impressive win for young Davidovich Fokina, and then, of course, he followed that up with a quarterfinal victory, three sets over Dennis Novakin. You know, what you love about Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, this guy's a ball of energy, right? In the same freneticness, the same, you know, next point, next point, next point. Let me keep playing. I want to keep going. I want to keep winning. I want to just do my thing on court. He's so spazzy almost in a good way. Uh, it just works. It's the energy he brings to the point. You know it's a relentless toughness, a relentless fight. He's just going to keep scrapping his way, keep making that extra ball. He's going to take that backhand down the line. He's going to throw in the drop shot. He's going to track down that approach shot that you were just oh so sure you hit for a winner, and he's going to put a ball on you, and he's going to make things difficult. And again, I don't think he's got the biggest weapons, right? It's not like a Zverev or a Pass or a Shapovalov or a Rublev where you're like, hey, this guy's ball just jumps off the jumps off the screen. You can just tell this guy is meant to hit tennis rackets. But for the 21-year-old Spaniard, who now in the live rankings is up to number 64 with his results here this week, with you know, on top of the results he had at the US Open, on top of the results he had in 2019, which of course feels like a lifetime ago, but this was a guy who had a lot of success on the clay. You're starting to see another guy who's almost certainly going to be in the next mix during these next 50 years. A guy who I think will just be in the top 50 until his career is over. A guy who just makes so many balls, whose floor as a tennis player, he's just going to be such a tough out, right? It reminds you of a guy like a Jordan Thompson or, you know, a, a guy like an Albert Ramos. Well, no, maybe a little bit more than an Albert Ramos Vinoles, but just a guy who's got that extra oomph, a guy who can do so many different things with the ball, who the harder you hit, the better he's going to play. It's just, he's got the requisite athleticism, and he's just got that, I don't know, that scrapper in him, that that tennis player, you know, if you play tennis, if you watch it, there's always those guys who the ground strokes aren't the prettiest. They don't pop off the screen the way some of the other beautiful players do, but they just know how to win. And Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, that's not quantifiable, and I always hate to do that to you listeners, not give you some sort of mathematical statistic to back it up, but he just knows how to win. You know, you watch enough tennis, you can just see the guys who's got it, he's got it, and he played exceptionally well. He has looked so good during this restart. That's a great win for him. Really looking forward to his match with Zverev. Well, I guess I did look forward to it, and Alex Zverev did win, and it was equally delightful. Seven five seven six. We'll break it down again later today. Hopefully, you're listening to all of our mini break podcasts. Hopefully, you heard our Great Shot Podcast Award Show on the GSP feed. Hopefully, you're checking out all of our content on our YouTube channel as well, and going to our website, CrackedRackets.com. But anyways, again, if you do that, you will see it's a two mini break Saturdays. I want to talk about these semifinals on their own. Otherwise, this podcast is going to go an hour. Nevertheless, Zverev Davidovich Fokina. That was a really fun one. And of course, the semifinal between FAA and RBA, the battle of three letters. Uh, FAA, a straight set winner over Radu Elbot. And, you know, there was a collective freakout. Uh, people I've talked to, collective freakout's the wrong word, but it was after watching Yannick Sinner and after watching so many of these other young guys, it was, are we too high on FAA? Has he not done enough at the slams or not really done enough at the ATP level for us to be as excited about him as so many of us were? Well, the answer to that is a resounding 
Absolutely not. We were justified in our excitement for Felix Osir Aliasim. If anything, you were not justified in your overreaction, your panic take that maybe Sinner's going to be better than FAA just because he had this really good French Open run. Now, I'm not saying Sinner's not going to be better than FAA, but I'm saying FAA, there's a reason he's on you know, the short list of who are the potential multi-Grand Slam champions. You know, we're talking five, six, seven, getting to that elite club of the players currently on tour. And it's you know, you watch him on an indoor hard court. You see the serve. You see the forehand. The, his confidence moving forward. Of course, again, you put a northerner, a Michigander, a Canadian in an indoor hard court. You're gonna bring out their best tennis. That's where we play our best. That's what we grow up doing. And so you can just see the comfort FAA has when he's able to find that first forehand. The stability of indoor conditions. And I'm not saying his forehand, his serve aren't equally effective outside. If anything, with how hard he hits them, they may be more effective comparatively to his opponents outdoors, and FAA is the only guy I would throw in the Andre Rublev category of, oh my god, did a fighter jet just take off when they hit forehands, uh, but he just looked so comfortable. There was nothing Radu Elbot could do to hurt him in this quarterfinal match. You know, there was nothing Laxanen could do in the round of 16 either, and now for FAA, he finds himself in a semifinal where he is going to have a really fun battle with Roberto Bautista Agut, who just has done just enough to survive his two opponents in Jill Simone and Hubi Hercots. And again, maybe that's a good comparison for Alejandro Davidovich Fokina. Not in the way, you know, their game styles aren't very similar, but neither Roberto Bautista Agut, and of course Roberto Bautista Agut, an incredible player, right? But his game doesn't jump off the screen the way a Rublev's does, the way even a Rayonich's does with that serve and that big pop on the forehand. And yet for Robbie Bats, it's just everything he can do, the totality of the game, the relentlessness. That reminds me a lot of Davidovich Fokina, uh, of course, for RBA here against Hercots. He gets a 7 6 5 Seven six love victory. That bagel in the third set, it's because Hercots didn't have any legs left, and that's because Bautista Agut tracked down every ball. The amount of times Hercots had to hit an extra or two extra, three extra volleys or putaways just to ensure the point was over, uh, it added up over time. So again, a huge credit to Bautista Agut, who now advances versus FAA. And folks, again, another match that lives up to the hype. That's the action in Colonia, in Sardinia. Again, things stay fun. It's a really, for, I, I said it, there's a reason this podcast is going to be titled Not Too Bad for a Mid-October. Seriously, not too bad. We are getting our tennis fix. Of course, we all hope these players stay safe and healthy for us to continue to see this sort of action. But, you know, credit to the ATP Tour. I suppose you have to give them credit, right, that they're able to execute these events. Of course, yesterday we talked about Sam Querygate or whenever our last podcast was, but still credit to the uh, the ATP for rocking and rolling. Um, of course, our other event going on this week at the ATP level in Sardinia. Just going to do this one quickly, although we will focus on it more on our podcast later on today. Uh, but we do have our semifinalist set, Marco Cecinato, knocking out Elbers Ramos Venoles in three sets. That was the only three-setter on the day. Laszlo Jure, a straight set win over Yuri Vesely. Danilo Petrovic, straight set upset win. I'm going to call that straight up an upset over Federico Del Bonis. And then, of course, young Italian wildcard Lorenzo Musetti down down three love in the second set after taking it 6-2 against Yana Kahneman. Flips the script. Just exactly what you want to see the young Italian do. Becomes the first player born in 2002 to reach an ATP semifinal as he knocks off Hahnemann 6-2, 6-4. It's going to be Cecinato, Petrovic, Jure versus Musetti in the semifinals. That, of course, is going to be really fun uh, because it's always enjoyable to see Lorenzo Musetti where he can go. Again, the list of players he joins, the other first semifinalists. I keep reading these for 95. Kyrgios, 96, Chorich, 97, Zverev, 98, Rude, Shapovalov, FAA, Sinner, now Musetti. Oh, this is all really good company to join. I mean, I'm looking at this list. The only name, like the worst case scenario here, I suppose, would probably be Roberto Carbeas Bena, who did it for the 1993s at age 21. And like of this list of names I'm looking at, he's probably had the worst career. I mean, the other one's fine. Does he want to be, you know, uh, Philip Krajinovic? Honestly, if you could tell any tennis player, hey, you can go have Philip Krajinovich's career. If that person tells you no, slap them in the face and take their racket from them and be like, you don't deserve to play tennis because Philip Krajinovich has been a top 30 player and you're never going to be that in your 
in life. So absolutely, you should take over uh, Philip Kranovich's. Uh, if you can have that sort of career offered to you, you say yes every time. The point being, uh, for Lorenzo Musetti to be accomplishing the sort of things he is at his age, it's just special. And so, you know, let's enjoy how special it is to have him right now as tennis fans. Let's not criticize the, when the matches go wrong. Let's just talk about the, the potential, the hope we all have. And of course, there are so many players, you know, my I'm, I'm home this weekend, so I'm with my little brother who was born in 2002, Lorenzo Musetti, also born in 2002. And the idea of having watching Nick have this sort of success, I would just be laughing the entire time. But players in the top 200 born 2000 or later right now, you've got Felix Ogier Aliassime, Yannick Sinner, Tiago Sabathvild, who has gone cold a little bit of late, but of course already has an ATP title under his belt. We all saw what Sebastian Corda and Hugo Gaston did during the French Open. The other name on that list, a player born after 2000, who is inside the top 200 now and is a perfect player for us to transition into our next conversation about the challengers going on this week, young Carlos Alcaraz, who just... He's a stud, folks. I don't know what else to say about this young player. I mean, he comes... You you look at what he has done these past couple of weeks, and for Alcaraz now, I think he's on a nine-match, eight-match, whatever it is, winning streak, as he now will advance a really fun final tomorrow uh, in Ferreira. And I guess I'll only talk about the ATP matches later. I will talk about the semifinals I saw today. But, you know... For Carlos Alcaraz, who last week in Barcelona wins a challenger, right? And so from there, he flies directly. Uh, you know, he's still in Spain, but still he's got to go to his next event. Well, he beats Ram Kumar Ramanathan, who we all know has been incredible. He beats Daniel Galan, who we know made the third round of the French Open. He beats Juan Pablo Vikovic, who if you listen to our GSP Aces of the Day, you know how successful Vikovic has been of late on the clay. And then he beats Via Martinez. All of these matches, by the way, this week, you know, the close or the, the biggest blowout out he had was his 6-6 six and six win over Ramanathan. His other three matches this week, all three sets, and yet he just continues to pull through. He continues to, you know, pull the, tr- you know, bring out his best form when he needs to. He continues to physically hold up just fine. I mean, his movement on the clay, he just looks so comfortable. It looks second nature, and folks, you know, I followed these next geners about as closely as I like to think as anyone out there. And I have distinct memories for so many of these players and what their breakthroughs looked like. And when you knew on the challenger level, okay, this guy's about to go to the ATP tour. We're never going to see him on livestream.com slash ATP again. And you know... Some of the the notable ones that stand out, and for me, they are going to be American-centric, but right, 2015, Taylor Fritz wins the Junior U.S. Open. I think he wins in Sacramento. I think he wins one more out there back-to-back as well. That two-slam stretch, you were like, okay, Taylor Fritz, top 100 player, and he hasn't looked back since. For Riley Opelka, I think it was the end of the 2018 season, I want to say, where he won in Champaign. He won in Knoxville or Tallahassee, one of them, the indoor challenger stretch, earned wild card for himself that he didn't even end up needing because he got in on his ranking to that Australian Open, but that was a huge breakthrough moment from him. You know, 2019 at the beginning, he goes on to win the New York Open, and from there, you're never going to see him on the Challenger Tour again. For Tommy Paul, it was last year's French Open wild card challenge. He wins a couple of them back to back. He's now solidly inside the top 70. You know, for for a bunch of these players, you have these sorts of stretches. And I know, you know, again, those are very American-centric. Francis Tiafo, it happened a couple of years ago as well. You know, that's what Carlos Alcaraz is doing right now. Yeah, This is the best part about the way tennis works is first you win your matches in the futures, then you win your matches in the challengers, and once you have proven yourself capable of winning eight, nine, ten matches in a row, multiple challenger titles by the time you're 18 years old on the challenger tour, you're ready to move to the next level to get into 250 qualifying, to play 250 events, eventually try and work your ascension from there. My point being... All of those players who ended up doing it, all of these young guys, and you know, Kesmanovic did it as well. I didn't mention his specifically, Shapovalov. I remember his breakthrough at the challenger level. You know, some of these guys, Chorich, Zverev, they just sort of zoom through. They don't even need the challengers. They just, they get that one wild card and they're off, but... Alex Diemenauer, that's another one. I think he won in Serbaton, right? Uh, I think he won a challenger on the grass, and then from there, he just kind of jumped off too. Uh, but the point being, that's what we're seeing Carlos Alcaraz do right now, and I hope people are enjoying it and appreciating this moment uh, because, again, watching a 17-year-old ascend to the top 100, one of the things that makes tennis such an enjoyable sport. So credit to Carlos Alcaraz, or credit to, yeah, Carlos Alcaraz for his incredible form. And again, he plays in Pedro Martinez Portero, a third 
rounder at the French Open, a guy we know is as as solid as the dirt on the dirt as you're going to find. So that is going to be a really fun battle. And then, of course, in our other final, you know who's incredible on the dirt? Halmi Munar, who we've talked about many a times. He had a similar run, really successful. I guess his was at the 250 and 500 level on the clay. And then from there, he was kind of in the top 100. And then he went back to the challengers on clay and had success. So it was less surprising. But he's going to have a really fun matchup. He's the number one seed this week in Lisbon. He takes on the number two seed, Pedro Sosa. And again, this is a top 100 battle, right? I believe Sosa inside the top 100. And so we've said this before on the podcast, but calling it the challenger tour, calling it the minor leagues, that's just bad branding because these guys are all incredible. These guys are just exceptional tennis players. You know, for Munar, top 100 guy for for Sosa, I believe he is currently at number 81. Yeah, where is Munar right now? Let's see. Munar is currently at, I'm going to guess, Munar number 111, and yet he's the number one seed here in the live rankings. Interestante, nevertheless, you know, these are two top 100 players, and it's a challenger final, but it could be a 250 final. It could be, you know, these are two really uh, high-quality dirt, uh, you know, clay court players, and so really fun action here set up for us on Championship Sunday. Of course, again, I want to recap the semifinal matches in a separate podcast. I will be doing that later in the day, and I will be dragging James Foster McDonald hopefully on the show. Now, I also mentioned this earlier in the week, just a quick update for some of you listeners. Ben Rothenberg will be joining me on the podcast to break down our five biggest storylines through the rest of this 2020 season. Unfortunately for I suppose you listeners, and again, this is the apology that I mentioned at the top. I am home this weekend, and so I'm trying to get the most out of seeing my parents being around there. Of course, they want to see me as well. The joke's on them. I don't know why they want to see me. I always say, hey, you need an update from me. Just listen to the podcast. That's my day-to-day operations. Um, But of course, I am trying to spend a little bit of time with them and try and hit the tennis court again with my little brother. But nevertheless, that podcast with Ben on the horizon, we've, you know, him and I going back and forth right now. Now, uh, it's just a matter of sitting down and actually recording the damn thing. So be on the lookout for that. I promise you, no later than early next week. So be on the lookout for that podcast. But a couple of other quick announcements, and then we'll wrap this show up. As of right now, Wimbledon is scheduled to go for the championships in 2021. And I know, you know, they're one of the few... Uh, I think the only major that had pandemic insurance, right? And when you're making as much money as Wimbledon does to throw the extra $2 million each year for pandemic insurance, obviously that shows of, hey, be, you know, that, that, that's every parent's lesson they want you to do. You prepare for the worst. You hope for the best, but of course, prepare for the worst. That's exactly what Wimbledon did. Well, they are, you know, they announced on October 16th, so I guess that was yesterday, that they are planning as of right now to hold the 2021 Wimbledon. It is full systems go. And do they know if they're going to have fans yet or not? No, they do not. But they do know they're going to do everything in their power to host an event. And I don't think that's surprising to any of our tennis fans because, of course, it's great to take advantage of pandemic insurance. But you know what's even better? having the damn Wimbledon itself. And so uh, not surprising to see that announcement, but of course something I know all of us tennis fans will enjoy hearing. Uh, what else do I have for you? It's not as good news, I suppose. Uh, we're, we can we can go uh, on the college level now. We did learn yesterday from Parsa, uh, Parsa Namadi, of course, who I'm sure most of you listeners are aware of, uh, that the Fresno State men's tennis team will be cut after this season in addition to wrestling and women's lacrosse for the Bulldogs. They reached the NCAA tournament in 20. 2019. They won their first Mountain West Championship. Of course, it's a devastating development. Uh, you know, this was a team that was top 20 for 15 years. This is a team that was, you know, coached by Peter Smith, and I believe they got to number four in the country. I think they had an NCAA singles champion as well. Uh, and of course, now, you know, just given the financial difficulties, given the financial reality we're all living in, uh, they were caught by the Fresno State program. And I can't speak to the exact details. I can't speak to the financial situation of the Fresno State Athletic Department, but I can say this. It sucks. It sucks for the athletes. It sucks for us fans. It sucks for us who all know that tennis is a better product with a strong college tennis game. We know the pathway to the pros college tennis can provide for so many athletes, men and women, singles or doubles players in tennis. And this sucks. This absolutely sucks. And so, again, support college tennis. Support your local teams. If you can, go to your local college tennis match. I know, obviously, now we're in the midst of a global pandemic, so be smart in the way you do it. Be sure you're wearing your mask. Be sure to sit away from other fans. But I promise you, a college tennis match is as enjoyable of a tennis environment as you will find. 
the only way to ensure, you know, from us, a fan perspective, there are a lot of things these teams can do. And, you know, we're going to get ready to preview or start our 2021 previews for the college tennis season. And we'll talk about some of the things these programs can do when we speak with those coaches. But us fans, what we can do, we can support college tennis. We can let our support for these programs be known, not only to, uh, you know, on tennis Twitter, to our fellow college tennis fans, but to your athletic directors, to your local programs. The only way you can express your support is by going out and actually doing it. And unless we do, more and more college tennis programs are going to take the hit. So please, 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 if you are a college tennis fan, let it be known. Don't be a quiet college tennis fan. Don't be someone who's like, yeah, I like Wimbledon and I'll talk during the Grand Slams, but, you know, I'm a huge college tennis nerd. I'm going to keep that side of myself quiet. No, none of that. We don't have time for that anymore. My patience for that has worn thin. Support college tennis. It absolutely deserves our support. It needs it. Uh, And of course, the ITA is doing so many amazing things, right, such as their ITA, uh, their program, their Tennis for America. It's an initiative between uh, the ITA and AmeriCorps to tackle poverty through tennis, to offer opportunities for young professionals, young college tennis players who are trying to find themselves a career, trying to find out exactly what they'd like to do for themselves. Uh, It's an incredible opportunity. Those are the sort of opportunities offered uh, when you have a healthy college tennis. So again, if you can, support your college tennis programs and do whatever you can. Again, you all know how much college tennis means to me. It's something we're going to be talking about a lot over these next few months here at Crack Rackets. It's a pivot we always get excited for. Always happy to drag Chris Hallioris back on the podcast, Matt Stachowiak. But of course, uh, just a little bit of a note for all of you listeners. Uh, with that in mind, as I mentioned, it's going to be a two-pot mini-break podcast Saturday. That was the quarterfinal recap. The semifinals are done. I'm going to go back and re-watch them. I'm going to record that tonight. We will have that for you before the matches start tomorrow morning. Of course, I will also be offering my GSP aces of the day for tomorrow. I'm not going to lie for Saturday. It was just a stay away for me. I just wasn't that confident in the picks I was going to be making. Uh, But nevertheless, I should be confident in my picks because I watch a lot of tennis and I do think I have a good inclination for how Sunday is going to unfold. So be on the lookout for that. And of course, like, rate, subscribe, review this podcast, the mini break, uh, the Great Shot podcast, Cracked Interviews and Inside Out podcast. Uh, If you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, or at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly, I'm at Great Shot Pod. Shout out, as always, to our super producers, Max Ligner and Daniel Westoff, for the of an any job they do day in, day out. Shout out, of course, as well to the support we get from our friends at Midwest Sports and Aerobar. Go to MidwestSports.com, use the promo code CR15. Go to Aerobar.com, use that promo code Cracked15 to let them know that we sent you there. And, of course, express your support for all they do for the tennis world. And, again, if you have missed anything, from throughout the professional tennis world over these past few weeks, be sure to go to our website, CrackedRackets.com, where you can find our amazing Cracked Rackets team and all the incredible things they do. Shout out, as always, to our Patreon subscribers for the support they offer. And by the way, if you want to get yourself some Cracked Rackets gear, go check out our store. I promise the hoodies. It's hoodie season. We all know that. Why not rock a Cracked Rackets hoodie while you are at it? But with that in mind, for our wonderful friends at Midwest Sports and Aerobar, our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we'll see you all later today. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.